0: Snow in the mountains was melting, and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. The situation was that a lot of different books we read about ideas and virality and what makes ideas stick talk about storytelling, but then they have one page on it where they're like, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is really fucking stupid and unhelpful. (laughs) So we killed Bunny. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, so
1: today, we're talking about the science of storytelling by Will Storr. Um mm-hmm. And as he said, the reason we're talking about this book is because tons of books and di- and and advice in different domains, business, content marketing, customer acquisition, um, even things like you know how to speak public speaking. Mm-hmm. They all talk about this idea of storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they almost never tell you, you know, what are the elements of a good story, and if they do, like you said, it's just like
0: they're very shallow. Beginning,
1: middle, and end, or they'll talk about like the five, you know, act plot structure or something like that. Not even. Yeah, not even. That would be pretty advanced. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, this this week we we took a deep dive into, you know, what is the importance of stories? Um, why stories? are so integral to the human experience, yeah. what makes a good story, mm-hmm. what are the psychological factors that play into storytelling mm-hmm. that you need to leverage to tell an effective story, mm-hmm. um, and all of those types of things.
0: Yeah, and I mean, w- what you'll get out of it is a better understanding of like how stories fit into our lives, but also like practical tips on how to like tell a better story on a deep level and it's like it's not going to be some super shallow stuff where it's like a person striving towards a goal like that's I mean that's not look how many times have you tried to like tell a story and you know it's a good story because you were there and it just falls flat because you haven't done it justice in some way yeah like we're going to help you avoid that situation with the toolkit we discuss, and um we're also going to introduce ourselves properly for the first time (laughs) So I'm Ion, I'm one of the founders of Read More. We use behavioral design to help you strengthen your reading habit. I'm a software designer out here in Silicon Valley. Um, I'm passionate about supporting us all in our doomed but defining task of self-perfection. Oh,
1: that was a good intro. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to match up to that. I, um, I, I like
0: took some notes on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't tell me you all right. I sorry, sorry, right. I didn't mean to have with you. <laughs> so, so I'm Arik, um, I'm a software engineer also out here in Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, I, I'm basically out here trying to build software to help people do the things they want to do, ultimately. He's um, also one of the founders of Read More. And also one of the founders of Read More, yes. Um, and one of your co-hosts of the Reading Rebellion podcast, most mm-hmm. weeks, unless Jules steps in or we have another guest, because I tell on that I need to go write code for the app. Because he wants to keep giving you guys updates, so I gotta keep writing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: Produce a a variety of content for you guys. Uh, Yep, yep, yep. So, so the thing we started with here was the beginning of Donna Tart's The Secret History. And what that kind of illustrates is like the first step of a great story, which is typically an unexpected change. Um, so you know, let's say like star wars Luke, you know, he um goes out, he's doing some chores, he comes back and his um aunt and uncle are killed, right or Camus starts the outsider with mother died today or yesterday, I don't know um, what what was your thought on on um on this unexpected change like opener to stories?
1: I thought it made sense um I think. I think the, it, it like, so, like, when you think about story startings, right, the one, like, terrible cliche, uh, you know, like, bad story start that always comes to mind is, like, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. Yeah,
0: right? yeah. do I like um, dark and stormy night. <laughs> I know,
1: I know, I do too. But, but I think the thing that's interesting about that is it's trying to serve as, like, this hook, right? Like, yeah. to get you in. It's like, oh, whoa, a dark and stormy night. But what it's missing is that, like, it's not that um, unexpected or crazy for it to be a dark and stormy night.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Whereas what they're talking about here, what Will Stewart's talking about is like a change, like something actually unexpected. Something is changing for the characters in the story Yeah. who you haven't even met yet.
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and, and that's a big part of it is like an unexpected change that's like, you know, relevant to the characters of the story, you know, in, in a deep and meaningful way. Um, you know, like for, uh, what's his name? Uh, Joseph Campbell, he'd be like, this is their call to adventure, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you think about this? Um, this kind of way in which detecting change is like one of the fundamental functions of the human brain?
1: I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, I thought that was really, really interesting, and I thought that it was, um, um it made sense, but it was a little surprising. I'm trying to find some of the, uh, the, the quotes here. So, let's see. There was a particular thing about, like, how our eyes work that I'm trying to find where he's talking about the, um, the change and um, how you see it A- and how our brains are just totally wired to um, detect change okay here we go here we go so you have the eye which is our dominant sense organ right um, but he's saying that if you hold out your arm and you look at your thumbnail that's all you can see in high definition and full color at once Color ends 20 to 30 degrees outside of that core, and the rest of your sight is actually fuzzy. You have two like lemon sized blind spots and you blink 15 to 20 times a minute, which blinds you for 10% of your waking life. You don't even see in three dimensions. So how do we experience vision as being so you know rich and um, clear, right? Um, and part of the answer is in the brain's obsession with change. So, oh, just happened my Kindle thing messed me up. Um, sorry, I totally lost where it was at. Um, yeah. So the part of that is the brain's obsession with change. So the large fuzzy area of your vision is super sensitive to changes in pattern and texture as well as movement. So as soon as it detects an unexpected change, your eye sends the tiny high definition core, which is a one point five millimeter uh, depression in your retina to inspect it. Um, and this movement, movement is known as like a, a saccade. I don't know how you pronounce that, but it's the fastest movement in the human body. And we do four to five of these every second, over 250,000 a single day. Mm-hmm. So your eyes are constantly moving and responding to change in the environment. And by doing that, that's how they're painting this picture of, of what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's like kind of a parallel there that's a metaphor for how like, we create and think about stories, right? Because it's about change over time. And by looking at these moments of change that the author is presenting to us, we like string together a narrative in our brain for, um, you know, what's going on. It's kind of so fundamental to the way our brain works so that even how our eyes work. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, 100%.
1: 100%.
0: Yeah. Yeah, raises an interesting question to me about like authenticity. So like, you know, the the most popular podcast like today is obviously like the Joe Rogan Experience. Um, the guy has like ten times the the listenership of CNN what he really provides is just like an unfiltered kind of authentic take on things and what's interesting about this like change detection and and the concept of authenticity is if you're just being authentic you know you're inherently going to stick out from the noise right because you're not being calculated you're not being like what uh, Scott Galloway would call like a bland you know right we're just this polite generic voice you know just echoing the crowd um you're intrinsically going to, like, blend into the crowd at times, stick out at times, without having to, like, be super, um, you know, intentional about it. Um, but on the flip side, too, like, yeah, I think just being mindful of that contrast, the importance of that contrast will help you get your message across. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um... So I thought that was pretty, I thought in general, the kind of psychological bent in this book, sorry, my chair is freaking, stop moving around. so much. It's not
0: It's not a fork. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a witness.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the psychological bent that he takes in this book is pretty interesting, like talking about various aspects of how the brain, you know, sees the world and how that relates to storytelling. Like one of the things that I thought was interesting was that Um, They talk about the natural inclination of the brain to resolve information gaps even when there are questions of uh, no importance. So like, you know, an example of a study was like they would give um, participants a grid of squares on a computer screen and ask to click five of them. Um, And some of them... In some of the tests, with each click, a whole picture of an animal would appear, but a second group saw small component parts of one animal. Um, and each square would reveal another part of the, the animal. And the second group were much more likely to keep on clicking squares after the required five. Like almost all the time, they would keep going until they identified what the animal was. You know
0: what would be interesting? What? would be interesting is as a in the app for daily reading, we give you one panel of a comic strip telling a story that we commissioned someone to write oh. that you can only access through the app.
1: That would be pretty cool. That would be badass.
0: That be I I want to know like I I don't even know what the story is that I'm <laughs> curious.
1: Like. Dude, the trick is how do we do that without ourselves reading the comic like as it's being developed?
0: So yeah, because like he could sneak some crazy shit in there, like you know what if like halfway through he like starts like parroting like you know some nazi
1: propaganda or something yeah we definitely yeah. don't want that so no. we'll have to read it but but I'm,
0: we can read it serially like ourselves you know yeah
1: we could it's kind of like uh like how they used to publish a lot of like sci-fi stories you know in like these weekly periodicals and stuff yeah um
0: dude the read now is i think is a great place so our inner app um and your app if you sign up there's like this read now functionality so like you know if you're strapped you're in bed you're like oh i suck i worked all day you know i'm tired i just don't have the energy i'm on my phone well guess what you don't have to be a loser you can read now and you can redeem your self-esteem and like build you know maintain your reading habit and as part of that we can give you like these installments of like serial literature be it sci-fi or even some like you know Classics Like, we're published in that format, you know?
1: Yeah. If that interests you. First one we have is uh, Break, Break, Break by Alfred Lord Tennyson.
0: Yeah, there we go.
1: Or at least that's the one that's on the wireframe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, Another one interesting that I thought related to that was this idea that the more we learn about a mystery, the more context we get, the more anxious we become to solve it. So, like, the more... As stories start to reveal little bits more and more, we increasingly want to know, you know, what is going on. Yeah. You know, who is Bunny and how did he die, you know? We already um,
0: explained that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we shouldn't have just explained it. We should have You're like right. left a little mystery and then as the podcast went on, revealed more and more of it to the listener. Yeah, yeah. If we were wanted to be uh, effective uh, storytellers.
0: I'm glad we're having this conversation because I really want to cement this. Like, this is a reread for me, this book. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I have this shelf of books up there that are, like, my, like, yearly, like, rereads that I put together. And I'm just going to have this on there and just, like, reread. It's
1: a fat shelf of rereads. Do you really reread those every year?
0: I'm working through it. I'm, this will be my, I've, I've read, like, I would say, like, 95% of those. So this coming year would be, like, my first year of rereading Okay. Yeah. It's
1: intense. Good for you.
0: Good for... All of us. Yeah. Because when you read, especially when you use our app, the people around you benefit from your knowing more shit and being a better citizen.
1: That's true. That is true. And just being generally more open and having wider perspective on the world.
0: Yeah. As long as you're not a a cock about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so another thing I saw is there's basically four ways that you can involuntarily induce curiosity in in humans. Um, A psychologist called Lowenstein broke this down in the paper, The Psychology of Curiosity. So one, the posing of a question or presentation of a puzzle. So that's what we were talking about, evoking this natural curiosity to figure out the context. Two, exposure to a sequence of events with an anticipated but unknown resolution. 3 the violation of expectations that triggers a search for an explanation for knowledge of possession of information by someone else interesting um
0: interesting i
1: think the possession of information by someone else is a very interesting one right like yeah. if you like say something quietly when your partner is nearby and they don't hear you, and then you... <laughs> and, i think i've seen you do this then... to yeah <laughs> yeah I do this to Margaret like fairly often and then like it's just something like totally innocuous right and then they don't hear you they're like what and you just refuse to tell them you're like, it's like you can't know. they'll get like really flustered and then eventually you will tell them you're just like oh yeah like I said like I need to find the lotion or something like, my hands are dry <laughs> but like oh my god they become very like determined to find that out
0: um, I'm like irate <laughs> yeah
1: exactly um so that's Th- that's pretty interesting <laughs> example of number four the knowledge of possession of information by someone else this like
0: incompletion ties into this this um type of psychology called gestalt psychology um in design like we talk about gestalt psychology a lot cause it's like it's about how your brain perceives objects as a whole so have you ever seen the picture of like um a triangle that's like let's say like like black and then you have like a triangle the color of the background like upside down on top of it Mm -hmm. so really it's three triangles but you perceive one yeah so this like the mind's propensity to close and resolve and and uh you know smooth over like the rough edges um of reality to like give you a coherent and consistent whole it's like kind of interesting there and also cognitive dissonance right so like you see yourself in a certain way but you act out of sync with that. The feeling you have of discontent with that, the dissonance you feel, comes from the desire to complete this picture of yourself in a, in a consistent manner. So this desire for consistency and the resolution of, of gaps and inconsistencies goes very, very deep from perceptual to personal. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah it's very interesting. Um, another thing that I thought was cool was basically talking about how um, how much of reality and our senses we filter out on a uh, regular basis right and it's related to this idea of constantly seeing change but basically you know evolution has given us perceptions that have helped us survive yeah um, part of that involves like hiding from us the things that we don't need to know. And that's almost all of reality, whatever reality is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I thought his, his example, he talks a lot about how like everything is this like that you can experience is this like mental model, um, of the world, right? Like there's yeah. essentially a hallucination in your brain of like, what is reality? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Though that that's that that ultimately will warrant a few podcasts and different a deeper discussion because you know that's like somewhat of a like Kantian anti-realist take where he's like our senses and our cognitive apparatus, our conscious process that like you know so heavily and selectively modifies the stuff of reality. That what we experience has only incidental and and no meaningful connection to like deeper reality beyond our skulls. Yeah, um, and there are assumptions like baked into that. So I'm not completely convinced that this idea of a controlled hallucination is is um, ultimately true. Yeah, but it's it's a dominant and popular argument.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting. I mean, there, there's two sides to that, right? Like, I think on the one hand, I do buy that. Like, I, I mean. mean Everything that you experience is filtered through the lens of consciousness, right? Yeah. And ultimately, that lens is not a perfect and impartial lens, right? Yeah. Like, there are some, like, there there is interpretation happening, right? And, like, to some extent, like, yeah, we don't know, you know, like, what actually is color, right? Like, you can never see a color outside of your perception. So, you don't necessarily know, like, what it is in an objective sense. But the flip side of that is, like, you know, this table is real. Like,
0: yeah. This is yeah, a
1: physical object that exists in the world. I, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and like, you are real. Like, I can yeah. see you. I can talk to you. You know, mm-hmm. I could, like, poke you like you exist. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I, I, I think, <clears throat> yeah, you, you, you don't want to go too far down this idea of, of you know, um, the
0: an- anti-realism. The
1: anti-realism. Because then you end up thinking, like, you know, we all live in the matrix and, like, nothing you do matters. And ultimately that's not true. Like, we we probably don't live in the matrix. And yeah, things yeah. you do, do matter, at least in the sense of your life, you know, and the people around you. Um,
0: yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, like, um, you know... <clears throat> so the the Kantian kind of like turn in philosophy was this idea that like reason is self-consistent, universal, but doesn't meaningfully apply to anything outside of our skulls and the Hegelians who came after that were like, okay, we're going to take it a step further not only is that the case that your perceived reality is largely if completely a construction of your mind and has very little meaningful relation to real reality, The, the Hegelians were like Real reality itself is contingent upon the workings of our mind. So they're pretty much like the secret almost. But like back then. Interesting. And deeper thought out. Yeah. But I disagree with that. and I So I guess, yeah, I'm just saying like this whole set of topics is very deep and we should talk about it because it's actually very important. Um, because the dominant paradigm of our time in many ways is deeply anti-realist and subjective. And the question of whether an objective reality exists is it's the the assumption is like if it does even exist we can't even touch it really is like the common assumption i feel
1: yeah um yeah it's an interesting thing it's an interesting thing i mean yeah i agree that it's probably a subject for for more um discussion and and delving into because yeah i don't think it's i don't think it's as black and, and white Subject at all. No, there's there's a massive gray area in between the two like mm. um, Extremes of like there is one true objective reality and like the other extreme Which is that we're just walking around in, like hallucinations and nothing is actually real.
0: Yeah So the example you give I thought it really like circumscribed the issue. Well, where it's like um, fuck, Your, like, made me <laughs> you're, you're like squad maybe Well, you're like what was your example you're like yeah so color like we don't know if color exists but you know we knock on the table and we know it's real
1: yeah
0: i guess my contention is like the slice of reality we do have access to um filtered and contingent though it may be is still meaningfully connected to some reality yeah okay though our thoughts can never perfectly align with it and we're always you know in a murky impressionistic relation to it yeah, um,
1: yeah. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. It's definitely not just like a complete fabrication of what's going on, unless yeah. you're making, like a lot of like psychedelics. But
0: then you, then you're in like, uh, you know, Zhuangzi's butterfly dream, where you're like, was was my prior consciousness real or is this real? Like, wait up. Yeah. What is even real at this point? Yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, no, I totally agree. Um... Stories. I thought another interesting thing, or cool thing, I should stop saying interesting so much. Um,
0: it is interesting.
1: Another cool thing he talked about was um, this, with related to this idea of like you know building these models in our brain. Um, they there was a sci- there was a study that tried to figure out if people track kind of like watch the models of stories that their brains are building with their physical eyes so they wore glasses that track their uh, saccades or their like eye movements that I was talking about earlier and when like you could see that their eyes would move in relation to the story so for example when they heard about events happening above the line of the horizon their eyes would keep making micro movements upwards as if they were actively scanning the models that their brain was generating to look for the things happening above the horizon. Or When it's they very are downward stories, their eyes would go downwards. Hmm. Um, and this idea that we experience the stories we read by building models of them in our heads um, makes like, kind of helps inform some of the rules of grammar that they talk about for writing. So this neuroscientist Benjamin Bergen talks about how grammar acts like a film director and it tells the brain what to model and when. He writes that grammar appears to modulate what part of an evoked simulation someone is invited to focus on, the grain of detail with which the simulation is performed, or what perspective to perform that simulation from. Hmm. And we start modeling these words as soon as we start reading them. So... We, we don't wait until the, we get to the end of the sentence, which is why the ordering that writers place their words in a sentence matters quite a bit. So Jane gave a kitten to her dad is more effective than Jane gave her dad a kitten because yeah, you can visualize Jane yeah. Jane gave her kitten to her dad she's taking Jane's the kitten and giving it to her dad yeah. and your brain is starting to model that as soon as it reads Jane gave a kitten to her dad yeah um,
0: yeah Yeah. which also like speaks to <clears throat> you know like I mean I, I don't know if this is the case I'd be curious to like understand different writers methodologies but do great writers like picture in their heads the scenario and then describe it So it has that, like, physicality and, like, sense of, like, realistic order to the words? Or do they write and imagine at the same time, then go back and rigorously edit so that the words, like, coincide with the mind picture? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I would imagine it's the latter. I mean, obviously, I'm sure it depends on the author and their personal style. But all of the writing classes that I've taken um, have been very focused on, like, um like to to write you have to write like it's not about yeah. sitting there and figuring out exactly what to write it's just yeah. about writing and writing and writing and writing and writing that makes sense it's not trying to self edit yeah. as you're writing because that reduces your creative output it takes you out of your flow um and like any like you know deeply creative task it's all about getting into that flow and like um putting content out so you write 10 pages you might throw nine of them out but it's important to not try to self-edit as you're doing it
0: yeah yeah dude um i think that's true i i think because what that probably does in a way it's like it lets you climb into the world you're creating like you know with each sentence you're like kind of getting a grip and you're climbing the ladder until your head pokes up above like the you know surface of that world and you're like oh this is what it's like you know right whereas if you're trying to like just imagine your way into it you're kind of like bouncing off of the outer shell of it maybe yeah you know
1: yeah exactly exactly totally agree
0: maybe we'll write like a read more book
1: maybe because that I'm could be a good. That on until i write some read more
0: code not adding more shit until i get this
1: mvp out that's
0: it we can call the book rebel reader <laughs>
1: We call them whatever you want. Where I'm gonna hire a ghost writer so I can write code. That's, fair, that's <laughs> fair. So I can get this app out to our listeners.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's that's the priority for sure. <laughs> that and these like fireside chats that warm your lives every week.
1: Exactly. I mean, this where
0: would is really, you be without us? Like, really?
1: <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you would be. You know, you'd be lost, you'd be confused, you'd be alone, you know, you'd be struggling.
0: You'd be tweeting death threats to Mark Zuckerberg, which you should keep doing.
1: You would probably turn into like, um, like, uh, the, the, the Droogs from Clockwork Orange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: doing ultraviolence. <laughs> yeah,
1: you'd just be running around doing ultraviolence, but we're like, hey man, just breathe, you know, read some books. We'll talk to you. It's all going to be okay.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, we're pretty much like the White Album of, uh, <laughs> I guess. Oh, <laughs> I all right, all right, let's see here. Um, <laughs> so with creating a world, did he talk about detail and like physical detail somewhere in here?
1: He did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's See if I have a highlight that will help me find it. Well, in the meantime, while you look for the detail, um, I thought one thing that was very interesting, very, 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 like, I guess, like, kind of surprising, but also made a lot of sense, was this idea of um, metaphor and how incredibly important um, metaphor and simile is to how we per- perceive the world. Um, so basically the idea is that, you know, we have these models of everything in the world and the models are made up of, you know, other smaller, like, sub-models. Um, so, and each of those models is packed with, like, associations from our own personal histories and, and whatnot. So, anyway, um, like, when we, for example see a glass of red wine, right? If we look at what's happening in our brain, it's not like a, there's a glass of wine area that lights up, but we see, like, different areas of the brain lighting up and responding to, you know, liquid, red, shiny surface, transparent surface, and different things like that. And when enough of them are triggered, the brain is like, okay, this is a glass of wine. Um, but... Um, Those neural activations aren't just done for descriptions of appearance, right? We're also detecting the associations that we have, right? Like vineyards or French culture or, um, you know, uh, some road trip you went on. The last time you got drunk and made a fool of yourself. Um, These various things. Um, And these associations have very powerful effects on our perception. So um then he talks about how this, you know, associative thinking gives poetry its power because a successful poem really plays on these associative networks, um, which is interesting. Um and it's these same associative processes that allow us to think metaphorically. So one crazy fact that I thought is analyses of language reveal that we use we use around one metaphor for every 10 seconds of speech or written word it's insane um which is almost constant right and he's saying like if it sounds like too much it's because you're used to thinking you're so used to thinking metaphorically that you don't even notice it right like ideas being conceived or driving rain or burning rage or people who are dicks um (laughs) these are all metaphors (laughs) like constantly um but we just don't even notice them um And he has an example here of a Virginia Woolf sentence where she uses a bunch of subtle metaphors to, um, really paint a very, very vivid picture of what's going on. Should we read it?
0: Yeah, let's read it.
1: All right. So this is from, uh, Virginia Woolf's 1930 essay, Street Haunting. How beautiful a London street is then with its islands of lights and its long groves of darkness. And on the side of it, perhaps, some tree-sprinkled, grass-grown space where night is folding herself to sleep naturally. And, as one passes the iron railing, one hears those little cracklings and stirrings of leaf and twig which seem to suppose the silence of fields all around them. An owl hooting, and far away the rattle of the train in the valley.
0: I love that. I love that. That has the the ring of, of poetry to it. Actually, the um, podcast we recorded earlier today, like yeah. we talk about strangeness. Yeah. I'm not going to steal the punch slide. Well, I guess I have to. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: we can just release or, it yeah, for yeah. a second, so then it's fine.
0: Um, yeah, I guess that'll work. Yeah. I guess that'll work. Okay, so basically, you know, this stri- part, part of strangeness is like this perceived shift in consciousness that you experience when you encounter like... A consciousness that's distinct from your own alien to you but still somehow familiar mm-hmm. so it's kind of the feeling of like a gear turning somewhere deep in your spirit but you're not sure exactly what the shift was so when I read this I feel that kind of like profundity and that 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 sense of the familiar reframed, and that like you know that that lever that's been pulled somewhere in my brain I'm not sure where yeah you know
1: yeah most definitely
0: it's haunting <laughs>
1: yeah it totally is it totally is
0: It has that that physicality, too, and that associated part, Like, long groves of darkness, islands of lights. Yeah, so much metaphor, yeah. It's just packed in here. Night is folding herself to sleep.
1: Right. It makes me want to read more Virginia Woolf.
0: Yeah. I'd be down to do an entire episode on Virginia Woolf or, like, one of her pieces or something at some point.
1: Yeah, most definitely. Um, And then he talks about, you know, two different ways metaphors can work on our brains... Um, either by opening an information gap or by um, kind of activating more like texture to to what we're feeling. For example, someone having a rough day versus having uh, a bad day. Or reading, she shouldered the burden versus she carried the burden. So it's really trying to um, feel, it's activating your like sensory um, your neural pathways and clusters that deal with perceiving senses, right? Like, feeling yeah. the yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: actually this ties really well into the detail question because it's like, I mean, some takeaways, like pick meaningful details for their associative power, pick sensory details that help people build their mind picture in a realistic way. Like, you know, if your character was there, what would they key into? Um, and there's no right or wrong answer, but there's more realistic answers and less realistic answers. Part of what people tend to key into is behavioral residue. So, you know, the example he gives here, it's like an untidy shelf in research attracts more attention than a sunsplash wall. The reason why might be because untidy shelf hints of human change, of a life in detail, of trouble insinuating uh, itself in a place that's designed for order. So that that idea is actually really helpful um, to me. Because, like, okay, detail. Like, you know, there's books where they spend, like, three pages or, like, 300 pages just describing, like, a field, you know? Moby Dick. Yeah, but Moby Dick is helpful if you actually want to, like, hunt whales.
1: Yeah, it is a good, like, manifesto on on what to do. (laughs) Yeah. If you're, like, a Norwegian or a Japanese person or or, um, an Inuit person who is the three people who still do that sort of stuff, it's probably very useful to you.
0: Yeah, whaling has really lost its cachet now that we can actually see and understand what whales are like. Yeah. Because it's like, ooh, they're peaceful creatures. Yeah. Very intelligent creatures. They're not these, like, sea monsters to fight. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: The only sea monster to fight is, like, Stipe Miocic. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to go whaling, do that.
1: Baby just will whale on you. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> you have one collect call, dude. This book is so um, vast and like there's so much to it that it honestly might take two podcasts just to cover this book. We're not even through like part of the first chapter.
1: <laughs> That's true, yeah.
0: And it, well. and it's a very important topic. Aria is dragging Bunny's corpse across the couch.
1: <laughs> I'm switching chairs. Today I sat in a different chair than I usually sit for the podcast. You don't I like that one? usually sit in the rocking chair, but today I sat in the straight chair and it was a mistake. One, it's creakier. Yeah. So I couldn't, I had to like sit very still. And two, it's less comfy.
0: Yeah. So oh, I that one. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was her ergonomic chair. She'd put oh, no. Yeah.
1: I like the rocking chair. It makes me feel, I don't know. So
0: it's a nice just like rock yeah it is rock. i love the rocking chair i love the rocking chair at some point we gotta like crack crack some scotch and like get a second rocking chair <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fun oh i learned horse soldier on the guitars that's a good campfire scotch song <laughs> do that one yeah all right all right so where, where are we at so I think one thing that would be nice to leave folks with today, because honestly, like, I I don't know how you feel, but I think there is a second podcast in here. Um, But it would be nice to just go through, like, a a full-on, like, approach you can take to tell stories and analyze stories, Um, you know, that you can kind of take away with you. And then we can come back and dig into the details of plots, endings, and meaning... Uh, We can dig into examples of the dramatic question, who am I, um, and the relevance of that. But the sacred flaw approach kind of um, summarizes a lot of that. So what do you think? Should we kind of explain the sacred flaw approach and then...
1: Let's do it.
0: All right, let's do it. Let's do it. So the sacred flaw approach is described by Will Storr as a way of building a story as a brain builds a life. Um, it's a straightforward series of steps that helps you discover an original character embedded in a an credible and relevant world who has a subconscious need and an external goal that works symbiotically to drive the plot. Basically, um, where you start is you pick a character who holds a belief um, that is. Typically adaptive to them but is ultimately untrue and you have an unexpected change that reveals the untruth of that belief so for example to start a story so for example Luke Skywalker believes he's like adventuresome and ready to take on the world um, his uncle and aunt get killed by stormtroopers he realizes he has a lot of growing to do and he's like not as ready as he thinks you know and then he goes through the process of trying to either Um Change and grow And like amend his belief And and develop as a person Or double down On the flawed belief Um So that's kind of the core of uh, Core of the sacred flaw approach And then Throughout the process You're You know You're testing Breaking and retesting A flawed character And asking the dramatic question Who are they? Like who am I? Yeah Um What did you think of this, like, Sacred Flaw approach?
1: I thought it was very interesting. I thought, like, right away I could see why it would be effective, right? Because in order to write an effective story, you have to have, like, this really rich picture of the characters in the world within which your story exists, right? Like, the story doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. You know, it's within... A richer world that exists there right yeah yeah I think some of the greatest stories of all time are authors who are really exceptional at doing that right like yeah an example like I think a lot of fantasy authors are great at this like J.R.R. Tolkien mm-hmm. right like the world that he created for like the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is so rich and so deep I mean the dude definitely was a bit of a maniac. Like he took it extremely far. He invented like multiple languages. Yeah. Um, which probably, you know, for your content marketing, you don't have to invent multiple languages.
0: But if you do, I mean, that guy's sold a lot of... Uh, that's
1: true. Yeah. He, his family is still probably doing pretty well off that. But, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it makes sense. I mean, basically w- what he does is, is he talks about, you know, how you figure out what this sacred flaw is and then how you use a series of of questions that you can ask yourself to develop that into like a very deep understanding of the character so like you as the author know this character at a very deep level yeah before you start like you know writing the story yeah um, yeah I think that makes a lot of sense I mean I haven't thought about that in in such concrete terms ever before but um
0: yeah yeah, I mean, one uh sorry, I, I really like The Witcher. Um just like rewatched it with Jules. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> so in The Witcher there's like multiple characters like have you seen it? No. Okay. I don't want to ruin this for you. Um but I'll put it in terms that I don't think it's gonna ruin it for you to explain what a Witcher is. Yeah, that's fine. So the Witcher himself is some, somewhat of a what if character. He doesn't necessarily have a very well developed sacred flaw. Yeah. He's like, what if we took this like kid and we like, you know, mutated him so he can fight demons and he, you know, didn't feel any like emotions.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? And then like there's another character, and I love the Witcher. I love his character, I love the show, but not a very deep, uh, realistic character in that sense. Much more of a curiosity character. Mm-hmm. There's another character who is, um, you know, has some, like, disability. Like, significant disability and is, like, bullied a lot. And she she, um, goes through and she, like, gets inducted into the Order of Mages and has the ability to, like, fix all of her disabilities. And she has this, like, relentless quest for power um, and kind of, like, desirability and having people love her because she, like... Has this fundamental flaw, which might be summarized as uh, something like, you know, I can never be loved or something like that. Like Mm -hmm. that belief where like I have to like do all this stuff in order to be loved. Right. Yeah. And it's palpable and realistic and like very like you get drawn in to like that storyline for that reason. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. That's dope. I think I watched the first episode of The Witcher maybe when we were in India. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: The second season's coming out December 17th, so... <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah.
1: I watched the first episode of The Walking Dead yesterday.
0: Oh, have you never seen The Walking Dead? You
1: no, know, I'm like way behind.
0: So that's going to be fun for you, because the first number of seasons are really good.
1: Yeah. You know. Yeah.
0: Um, it's spooky season, you know, so I've been trying to watch... Uh, spooky stuff, yeah, yeah. We should I'm excited to see Midnight Mass, that looks really good. I
1: don't know anything about that one
0: it's a little bit enigmatic but basically like a priest comes to this town and like there's something weird going on
1: I've been watching some classics lately I watched um, The Exorcist last night and nice and we watched uh, Texas Chainsaw recently which was scarier than I thought it was gonna be um, really yeah I think well we watched the 2003 reboot yeah um, which is the I wanna say Tim Burton
0: Tim Burton that's an interesting choice
1: that might be wrong that it was Tim Burton
0: yeah cause I feel like then it would be like purple and green like striped guy in like a spandex suit you know with like scissor hands
1: yeah definitely not Tim Burton who who? I feel like there was some something
0: it would be like Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp <laughs> yeah, Exactly, exactly I don't know what was I who was I thinking
1: of yeah I have no oh Michael Bay Michael Bay that's what I was thinking of. Oh, Definitely interesting, interesting. Very different than, than Tim Burton.
0: Michael Bay is an interesting choice, but much more plausible to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. I like Tim Burton. I haven't watched the Tim Burton movie in a little bit.
0: I like Tim Burton too, but he has a very distinct style. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And it wouldn't make any sense for me that.
0: That would be... I would love to see that movie, though.
1: It would be really weird.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, anyway... Back to the, uh, the, the sacred flaw approach. So, um...
0: We haven't talked about theory of control yet. No. It was a very important concept. Yeah, maybe we, we should, should touch it. on that. Yeah, yeah, and then that comes back to sacred flaw, because the sacred flaw is a flaw in their theory of control. Right. Yeah.
1: So, my good friend and brother, what is <laughs> the theory of control?
0: Um, so they're... And correct me if I'm wrong, because... I haven't flipped to the page, so I'm just like over my memory here, but theory of control is your model that you've built of yourself, your world, your social world, um, that allows you to maintain a sense of control and stability over it. It's it's your it's your sense of how things get done, how you can protect yourself, how you can survive and thrive in the world. Um, and you know, for example, you might have a theory of control that says in order to get ahead you have to work hard right yeah you might have a theory of control that says in order to get ahead you have to build social relationships you might have a theory of control that says in order to get ahead um you have to know as much as you can and work relentlessly on a problem in isolation and that last one would be a great candidate for a sacred flaw because you know there's in the history of like innovation in computer science, there are several of these like lone innovator types that, in parallel, discover something important, but because of their flawed belief that innovation occurs in isolation, mm-hmm. they end up uh, unable to bring that innovation to fruition and and you know die bitter and destitute. Right. Um, so yeah, basically, when when your theory of control is, is broken in some way. And therefore, when, when you are broken in some way, uh, in a certain way, you have to go on a quest to either fix it, improve it, or not. And that raises the question of who you are, which creates an interesting tale of human interest. Right.
1: Yep. Uh, I agree. I think you uh, summarized that quite well.
0: If you, had a, if you were a character and you had a sacred flaw, what do you think it would be?
1: Um, what do I think it would be? This is like a job interview, like where they say, like, you know, what is your worst quality? And then you say something, <laughs> you say something like super pretentious. I like, work too hard. Yeah, I'm too much of a perfectionist, you know, I, <laughs> I always do a great job on everything. <laughs>
0: um, that can I, be a problem,
1: though. <laughs> If I'm being realistic, I think my sacred flaw would probably be something related to, um, like, almost being, like, empathetic to, like, a fault, like, to the point where, like, I consider other people's, um, you know, needs and desires above my own frequently. Um, So.
0: You're, like, bye bye, like, our dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very
1: much like that. Mima, our mom, always yells at me for that. Uh, But I've gotten a lot better at it over time, I think, you know, at, 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 like, drawing boundaries and stuff like that. But um, it would be something related to that, I would say. Yeah.
0: What about you? When I first tried to do this exercise, when after I read this book in the car, I was, like, talking to Jules about it. I was like, hey, what what do you think yours are if you were a character, you know? Yeah. First thing I realized is the difference between characters and people are people have a lot of flaws. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, then I tried to find the through line of, like, the seven or eight things where I was like, yeah, these are things, you know. Yeah. Um, And I think maybe, like, some kind of distrust of the world. Like, a sense that things don't just happen, you know. Like, you don't get put on, you know. Like, things don't just come to you, you know. Like, kind of like, what do you call it? Um, Trust everyone but cut the cards kind of thing. Yeah. And that does create problems for me, you know, like that creates problems in terms of like reflexive, like, um, resistance to authority, like, you know, very strong, like counterable resistance. Some people telling me what to do. Um, hard time kind of like fitting into like groups of people and being like, Hey, I'll just go along with whatever the fuck, you know, whatever's going on. Yeah. Like, um, but over time, I think I have been able to start to like resolve that and bring it into balance. But Yeah
1: you're just too much of a maverick
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're like Joe the plumber over here yeah <laughs> it is what it is
0: <laughs> uh, it's a throwback <laughs> <laughs> back to the, the the greatest presidential
1: campaign <laughs>
0: you know, I'm, I'm too weird. much of a maverick <laughs> do you think really, do you think our, our baby brother would know like, no no no
1: no he definitely wouldn't know I'm curious if like Margaret's little younger sisters would, would know what a maverick is.
0: Oh man, dude, that's now, such I a to, throwback.
1: I'll have to text them after I leave uh, and then I'll tell you at, uh, at, at dinner if they if they knew what it was. I like to do this to them all the time just like text them random, randomly about some like, you know, early 2000s thing. You know? <laughs> hey, you guys know what this is?
0: Dude, um, that's, it's crazy how young, like people younger than us are.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Sarah Palin's sacred flaw is like thinking she can see Russia from her house (laughs) (laughs) no but literally that's one of the things that tanked her campaign because she was like had this flawed belief that being adjacent to a country not really like in the most remote part of that country like makes you a foreign policy expert
1: in the most remote part of both countries yeah um okay so the other thing he talks about is, like, drilling into what uh, someone's sacred flaw is. And he says that, you know, typically it typically takes some time to kind of drill down and figure out what it was. Like, someone said to him in his writing class, you know, the protagonist's sacred flaw is that he's very controlling, which is a start, but it lacks precision, and it doesn't vividly suggest a specific suite of behaviors. So when I hear controlling... I'm not immediately able to imagine this person in any situation beyond a vague and cliched, glowering and demanding. So we reach for further precision. We say, exactly how does he try to control the people around him? What's his actual strategy? And the answer came, he does it by telling stories, tall stories. Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs, there you go. Um, Or... Um, you know, there's a disgrace. Some the screenplay for Shattered Glass. There's a disgraced journalist who found fame and then infamy by doing exactly that. Um, an overprotective mother who her, coddled her children with comforting lies, mm. um, and then you're off, right? So you need to think about how to succinctly describe your character's broken theory of control with precision. What's the flawed belief they have about themselves and the human world that they cling on to and that has come to largely define them? Um, So you can use a couple of different statements to, to help you kind of like start thinking in this way. Like, you know, the thing people most admire about me is I'm only safe when I the most important thing of all in life is, the secret of happiness is, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Well, and like, you know, if you go through it, if if I do this for like my secret flaw, I'm only safe when I am working relentlessly and striving for independence. Secret of happiness is independence. The best thing about me, I don't know what the best thing about me is. (laughs) The most uh, terrible thing about other people is conformity and group think. Yeah. So, you know, it starts to point towards, you know, some level of distrust. Know, oh. Right. If you if you if you went through these like what do you think?
1: Um
0: I admire a lot of stuff about you. I admire a lot of stuff about you. But what do what do I most admire about you? Mm. I think you have a high like high degree of integrity in the way you approach things. And I think that is both the quality of your work and how hard you work at it. But it's also, like, the way you treat other people and things, right? Like, your neighbor, like, you you were super nice about her constant complaints for, like, a long, long time. And then even, like, today when you were like, listen, like, we live in an apartment. This is, like, not reasonable. You're still like, okay, I'll turn down the bass. Whereas, like, for you and for, for me, it's like, we were, like, inebriated that one time and blasting Bob Marley at, like, 11 p.m. <laughs> we almost got into a fight with, like, varsity football players. <laughs> <laughs> Which was again an example of like it not working. Like, if 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 those those people were very kind and not engage us, yeah. Because if they had, it probably would not have been good for us. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. You the know, college D one varsity football players are a lot bigger than us.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, they were nice people. They were like, hey, you know, I like the, the way you play guitar and stuff. Like,
1: yeah.
0: But they're just... just like we just want to not listen to Bob Marley like eleven p.m. or <laughs> whatever.
1: <laughs> but why?
0: Isn't that why? I
1: can't understand why. Yeah. First of all, thank you. That was very nice. Um. Yeah. Um my sacred flaw, the best thing about me is I'm very good at engaging people and making them feel like I'm very sincere and open without actually revealing anything about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I never wanna. I never wanna guess that. But maybe that's what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think you also get a different view of it because, like, you're one of the few people who, like, you know, we're like close. Yeah, you know, like yeah, very close. Yeah, um, yeah. But that that could be one thing. Um, the secret of happiness is just like having good relationships with people. Or the secret of happiness is being filthy rich because you made like a crack reading app that <laughs> <laughs> obsessed with reading and reading so much. Man, just,
0: what a dream.
1: Millions of dollars.
0: Dude, if if everyone was just, like, reading all the time and just, like, you know, super... One, one of the reasons I, like, wanted to do this at all is, like, there's certain people you see where the depth of their reading and knowledge acquisition just, like, is is staggeringly impressive. You know, like, they're able to connect with other people and, like, have this deep insight um, into the world and nature and human nature because they've, they've put in this massive amount of work, you know, and they have this connection to like um, our culture and the great minds that came before. And like, they're not as easily swayed. They're not as easily like, you know, captured by the latest, you know, contagion or trend. They're able to like, you know, they're grounded. They're deeply grounded, you know, and people like, you know, um, rabbi jonathan Sachs from the uk like the uk is like national rabbi like um who passed away you know rest in peace like we need more people like that you know and it's hard to become a person like that and i think we need better tools to like help us at least be more than we are transcend ourselves and uh you know take on that that doom but defining task of self-perfection
1: yeah okay. yeah yeah Okay. Any last thoughts on the, um, the sacred flaw? Rush? Oh, okay. So the next thing you have to figure out is the origin damage, which yeah, is basically working yeah. out when and how the damage occurred that created your character's flaw. Um, I think the most interesting thing for this is he talks about you need to actually like write this out if you're if you're writing like a story, like a a novel or a short yeah, story. Like, yeah. Yeah. You need to sit and write the scene with like descriptive words with dialogue of the exact moment when um, this character first crystallized their theory of control and their sacred flaw yeah yeah even though you're not going to put that in the, in the story it's not going to be in there yeah but you have to write it and make it very vivid and clear and precise and then you can go back to that and that's how you start really building out this like living character
0: right right <clears throat> you know to me this kind of speaks to some of what we were talking about with like segmentation doing companies where it prevents this wishy washyness of like who are you you know like when a company doesn't know what their values are when they don't know who their customer is like who who they are serving it's just like you, they lose their identity and same with same with a character in a story like if you don't understand you know what is this character's subconscious and conscious motive? What are they striving towards? Um, it just becomes muddy and unrealistic. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Joe the Plumber was actually a real person?
0: So, like... He was just,
1: like, an imaginary, like, uh, idol. He was, like, an actual human guy. Really? Yeah, Samuel Joseph world's a little
0: bugger interesting anyway <laughs> <laughs> man politics yeah i mean you want to tell talk about storytelling gone it right like those people like you know use these like reductionist stories to like enrage and capture the populace and then just like you know bat them around rob them blind dude did you know coca-cola um Maybe even today, but until very recently, he's, like, one of the only companies in the U.S. that can still, like, legally import coca leaves. Yeah. You, you, you listen yeah. to that episode? Uh,
1: I didn't listen to this in podcast, but I've read that before. Yeah. What episode was this
0: in? Okay. Um, I think... I'm going to get this wrong. Robert Barstow is, like, a professor of environmental history. He was on Joe Rogan talking about Monsanto. Mm-hmm. And he has a book called Seed Money, which was, like, um, Coca-Cola and Monsanto are, like, super tied together. And part of it is like, one of their first interrelations was sy- synthesizing caffeine from tea leaf waste and from um, coal. From coal. From coal, straight up from like coal byproducts. That's. Safe. I don't think. I mean, Coke is not good for you. True. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But it's a great question. That's
1: fair points. Yeah, I mean that's. Uh intense don't drink coal it's my advice to the listeners of today
0: yeah i i I would agree i would agree
1: okay um i think we're running out of time so we can quickly skim through the last few things in the sacred flaw approach um you want to think about their personality um
0: that's an entire several podcast episodes to dig into personality psychology
1: yep yeah um And then you need a moment where they, this is actually in your story, but you need some moment where their sacred flaw is really challenged. Um, and then they have to, you know, either change the way that they behave, um, change their theory of control in order to survive and thrive in the world, or they fail to do that, and they fail in their, Goals.
0: yeah so it's like Darth Vader you know does he throw Darth Sidious down the, sh- the shaft or does he kill Luke you know yeah yeah exactly it's all Star Wars for me <laughs>
1: everything is Star Wars
0: um pretty much honestly pretty much mouse house. My, my only like defense weapon in the house right now is uh the lightsaber that really bought
1: me <laughs> <laughs> you have this little like uh, bottle opener that we made at that blacksmithing class
0: Yeah, we are actually, like, blacksmiths, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We blacksmithed one time. It's really hard.
1: Like, you would think that it's less hard than it actually is.
0: If I was, like, a rural nerd, I would have hobbies like this. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it's, like, hard to have, like, the space, time, property. Dude, there's so many cool hobbies. Like, it's impossible to, like, get them all, like... Um like recently I was randomly like should I take some horseback riding classes
1: you gotta move to uh, like the peninsula for that there's a lot of yeah. like really rich like weird stables. horse people in yeah. like, Los Altos hills
0: and shit it seems like there's a ton of stables down there
1: yeah yeah but it's all like equestrians you know not like
0: yeah like ride. English style yeah, dressage exactly, and shit. exactly. Mm. what you would
1: expect from out here you know
0: I I want to do more of like the Western style, Yeah, yeah like, like barrel racing and shit. Yeah, that looks fun. That yeah. looks fun. Margaret's done that. Really? Yeah. Oh, she's cool. Yeah,
1: she
0: is. <laughs> <laughs> we we should do some kind of like freaking um, I don't know. I think the best book for Margaret, if she wanted to like get on the guess for a start, would be like *Zoo or something. You know. I don't know anything about that
1: book.
0: It's about like diseases that you see in like animals, um, the informed diseases that you see in humans. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Oh, related to the horseback ride. One thing you can do that I want to do is um, so a lot of the national wildernesses that are near Yosemite, you can hike into Yosemite, but it's about fifteen or twenty miles before you hit the edge of Yosemite. So what mm. you can do is you can get a one-way drop off on horseback with all oh, your gear. Cool. So the first day with the outfitter, they like ride you up there. And then they drop you off, and then you do, like, a one-way trail, so you can, like, go a little bit out into Yosemite and then loop back to that trailhead in the National Forest. Yeah. But then you cut out that, like, 15 miles of walking in.
0: Can we Um, bring the dog? No. Okay.
1: Into Yosemite, back country, almost definitely not.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And on a horse... I don't think dogs can ride <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: I don't know what can happen. Like, That's fair. You know, I, mean, a I don't wagon? think dogs
1: can ride horses.
0: I don't think he can ride a horse. I don't know about other dogs, but he doesn't... In a
1: carriage, you know, that could work, but...
0: He gets excited around horses.
1: Well, yeah. Would, would the horse also be okay with that? I mean, I don't think so. You could tell we're not equestrians. Like, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I'm not an equestrian. I'm just a guy who rode horses in camp, like, once in Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the same camp in Malaysia. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> that,
1: that was awesome, though.
0: Yeah, it was. It was.
1: Riders Lodge. I wonder if they still go to Riders Lodge at UWC
0: If they don't, that's stupid. They should. Um... Okay, so we talked about personality. One more thing about this, like, origin damage. So your hero, you know, they have this origin damage, they learn a lesson that is imperfect, sometimes adaptive, does something for them, makes them feel good in some way, and then they experience a powerful confirmatory event that proves to them that this belief is correct. Um, Will Store recommends that it be a pivotal moment that took place before the age of 21. I want to do more research on this aspect of developmental psychology, and this might even warrant a podcast episode, is like, how important are these early childhood experiences? Because it feels a little bit to me like it's, you know, overemphasized, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just wrong. Like, so we should do some, some research on that. He's done a ton of research, and he he believes that these early childhood experiences are extremely formative. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so then, you know, make them defend their action and their worldview. Um, you know, use exposition, make them speak out loud like the you can't handle the truth speech from a few good men. Um, and create a characteristic world. Like, how is their flawed theory of control built a particular life around them? Like. Think think in terms of detail. Think in terms of behavioral residue and and physicality. Like, you know, like, is their environment messy? Is it tidy? Like, what is in their space? What space do they inhabit? How is their flaw to material or career gains? Um, What does it do to their sense of being? Does it give them a sense of heightened status or make them feel superior? What small moments of joy does it bring them? Um, Who does it bring them close to? And what goals does it generate? There's all these different factors that this this core aspect of their personality are generating. And when the unexpected change throws them off balance, all of this is thrown into question. And all of this is what they risk losing if they amend themselves and come closer to their higher self in reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. And with that...
0: Wait, one more thing. One more thing. The unexpected change. There's a bunch of different types of Things that unexpected change can be. I really do have to go, like, really bad, but um, you can have an opportunity, a plot or a conspiracy, journey or quest, investigation, a misunderstanding by a powerful figure, a revelation made about either your character or someone else, promotions, demotions, enemies, monsters, unwelcome figures, accusations, onerous tasks, discoveries, rescues, reckonings, dares, challenges, injustices, escapes, attack by enemies, temptations, and betrayals. So if you're looking for a specific example of an unexpected change, you can use one of those.
1: Nice, yeah, and really, if, if you're trying to write an actual story, I think what we've done is give you a good overview of the elements of storytelling. But this, there's this um, sacred flaw pro- approach approach is literally like a manual. It's an appendix. You can follow it if you're you know trying to be an author um, or or write you know fiction or nonfiction anything like that. Um, I strongly recommend you pick up this book and read through it and keep it as a reference on your desk. I think it would be invaluable for that use case.
0: And and honestly, I I would I would say anyone should buy this book. Yeah. Anyone who wants to do anything material in the world that involves other people should buy this book because it's a crucial subject and very poorly explained and shallowly explained. Um and this book goes both practical and extremely deep with it. Um but
1: With that, we come to the end of Reading Rebellion for today. Yeah. Um, Thank you all for joining us. Um, If you want to chat, drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io.
0: We're Reading Um, Rebellion on Twitter, too. Reading
1: Rebellion on Twitter. The app is on the way. And soon your life will be so deeply enriched and filled with reading that you will smash your phone with a sledgehammer and Mark Zuckerberg will never extract another cent from you.
0: That's the dream. That's, <laughs> that's honestly the dream. It's honestly the dream.